Welcome to the Maritime Executives Podcast Series, In the Know. I'm Tony Munoz, Editor-in-Chief. Our Executive Corner Podcast will provide conversations with top executives concerning events and issues that are shaping our industry today. We will also bring you up to speed with the latest news and editorials covered by the Maritime Executive. This podcast is brought to you by Advanced Mechanical Enterprises, also known as AME Solutions. AME is a mechanical reliability services company specializing in condition monitoring for your propulsion systems and land-based machinery, and its expertise and products are respected throughout the world. AME can identify the root causes of machinery issues and correct them immediately. Hiring AME for condition monitoring will reduce maintenance budgets, mechanical failures, and unplanned equipment outages. If ROI is important to your company, then AME is the answer. Visit the AME website at amesolutions.com to learn more about condition monitoring. Welcome to the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast series, In the Know. I'm Paul Benecki. Today I'm joined by Brian Clark and Timothy Walton of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. They've just published a timely and insightful report on the future of the U.S. flag fleet and emergency sea lift capacity, titled Strengthening the U.S. Defense Maritime Industrial Base, a Plan to Improve Maritime Industry's Contribution to National Security. Thank you both for taking the time today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us on. To start, do you think you could give us a quick introduction about yourselves and how you came to do this report? Okay, so this is Brian. Um, I've been at CSBA for about uh, six years, and I'm a retired submariner. Um, I came to CSBA by way of the uh, Chief of Naval Operations Office, where I was his uh, special assistant and the commander of his uh, commander's action group. I uh, came to CSBA, and I've been doing work on naval forces and naval concepts uh, in addition to new technologies for about six years. And um, we started this study as a result of some questions that we had about the national security contributions of the commercial maritime industry. And I'll let Tim introduce himself. Sure. I'm Timothy Walton. I'm a research fellow at CSBA. I've been there for about four years, and I focus on developing new operational concepts for the Department of Defense. Uh, we focused on, on this study in the maritime industry, and it's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm an avid reader of maritime executives, so it's great to be on. That's great to hear. I'm glad you like our stuff. So your new report covers the U.S. flag fleet and the government's sea lift capacity. What made you interested in writing about this area? Well, uh, this is Brian. So a couple of years ago, we had done a study uh, that looked at the demands on the Navy uh, that were being uh, uh, placed on it by the National uh, Command Authority to uh, service uh, overseas requirements in the Middle East and uh, Asia and its ability to support that demand signal. Um, and so that started us down the road of looking at the ability of commercial industry to sustain today's fleet uh, for a maintenance and uh, and support perspective. Last year, Tim did an excellent study on maritime logistics that looked at the ability of the maritime industry to support the nation's sea lift uh, requirements. And those two components, uh, shipbuilding, ship repair, and then also the sea lift requirements are two major components that the commercial maritime industry provides for U.S. national security. And so after those two studies, we decided to look more comprehensively at the commercial maritime industry and how it supported um, the U.S. government and, and the nation's uh, security interests. And so just for background, how would you assess the state of the American maritime industry today? Uh, so I'd say it's, it's actually... Uh, pretty it's it's strong to the degree that it actually um, is supported by the combination of 
regulations and programs that the government has provided for it. Uh, but I would say in general, it's very fragile in that um, if those programs or regulations were to change, then uh, the commercial maritime industry would likely be unable to provide the national security benefits that it provides today. So it's it's in a very kind of tenuous situation where year over year, it's dependent upon the government um, maintaining a set of uh, support structures in place um, that are always subject to congressional or regulatory action. I'd also add that I think as we look towards the future, there are a number of challenges in terms of strategic sea lift or other par- parts of the force where the current fleet really isn't well prepared to be able to support that. Uh, for instance, in terms of strategic sea lift, it's very old in terms of the primarily government-owned ships that are in reserve. And then we don't have enough mariners to actually man the fleet. So the the current f- strategic sea lift model, which is one component of the, the larger defense maritime industrial base that, that we're examining, faces challenges moving forward. So in this report, you've proposed that one potential solution might be to expand the maritime security program, the incentive program for operators who flag commercial vessels into the United States. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about this proposal and why it might be preferable to some of the other alternatives? Uh, Yeah. So what we were trying to seek in the report was a way to create uh, kind of a market-based solution to addressing the sea lift demands of the future uh, and also try to, in in turn, support some of the shipbuilding and ship repair needs uh, that the U.S. government has. And so to explain, uh, right now we've got a very large government-owned sea lift fleet, but it's getting very old. You know, our government sea lift ships are on average more than 40 years old. Uh, they use a, a variety of propulsion technologies that are not available commercially, like steam propulsion. And as a result, uh, you know, those ships need to be recapitalized and we're reaching the point where we need to buy a whole bunch of new sea lift ships right now. So coming up with a better way to support that future requirement than just the government owning ships was important to us. And we saw the maritime security program as one avenue to expand the capacity of U.S. flagged ships uh, without necessarily having to have the government own them and sustain them in an inactive status, you know, in perpetuity. Uh, We also saw a maritime security program as a way to uh, expand the number of ships under U.S. flag that might improve the uh, demand signal for industry in terms of uh, shipbuilding and ship repair. Um, that We saw that as maybe even a lesser uh, benefit because a lot of these ships might still be bu- built overseas, but some of them might be built in the United States. Uh, and then we would see complementing that expanded maritime security program with a smaller number of U.S. built ships that would help support the U.S. Uh, shipbuilding industry. Uh, that expanded maritime security program uh, would also give us a greater pool of uh, U.S. citizen and, and U.S. Uh, uh resident alien uh, uh, sailors that would be able to man uh, ships that would be drawn out of an inactive status at some point for future sea lift demand. So we saw mariners, ships, and ship repair and shipbuilding as all being potential benefits of having an expanded maritime security program. So I can see maybe a, a budget and fiscal benefit to this as well. It would be less capital up front. Is that maybe also part of this, that it's an affordable way for the government to recapitalize America's fleet? Yes. So, so we found that, that uh, an expansion of the maritime security program and some other initiatives that we proposed were more affordable, uh, certainly in the, in the short term, but also over the long run, as you would foster a healthier industry. So I think the fiscal considerations were one factor. Another one was the readiness of the fleet. So today's uh, strategic sea lift fleet that's predominantly government-owned and is, is in a very poor state of readiness. You can see testimony by the maritime administrator, by the transportation command commander, who all bemoan that the fleet 
only has 40 to 60% state uh, of their ships are ready to sail at any one time, depending on how they're counted. So the current model isn't very ready. By having a greater proportion of the strategic sea lift fleet be in the maritime security program, you would have an active fleet and commercial service that would be more ready to uh, to be activated in a potential conflict. The, the third attribute, I think, of this expansion of the maritime security program that was positive is that you'd not only solve the, the ship problem that you have today, where you have a gap in the number of ships and square footage capacity you need for a scenario, but you also solve the mariner problem, where today we have a gap of 1,800 or so mariners for a protracted conflict. By having more mariners in active commercial service during peacetime, we would have a larger pool that could not only man those ships during a potential conflict, but could also man some of these smaller number of government reserve ships. So one other thing, a, a substantial share of the Ready Reserve and MSC sea lift fleets are made up of row ships, which are used for military vehicles and rolling stock. And today's MSP fleet is primarily container ships, which are used for shipping dry stores. Would the MSP incentive model work for row operators in the same way that it would work for ocean carriers? Uh, so we thought that there would be some uh, government are railroad capacity demand, uh, but you're right. I mean, what will likely happen as you expand the MSP fleet with a larger number of railroads is you're going to have to increase the stipend to allow those uh, ship owners to be solvent, you know, for that for that business model to work with a more diluted um, government demand signal for railroad capacity uh, because they're going to have to be dependent upon commercial cargo to a greater degree, which gives you commercial rates. And to make up for that, they're going to need a higher MSP stipend. And we incorporated that into the study. So our cost estimates include an expectation that the stipend will need to grow in anticipation of the cargo from the cargo preference uh, being more diluted over a larger number of ships. Uh, now, that's unique to the RORO situation. So container ships, uh, there's plenty of cargo capacity there. We still believe the stipend might need to go up. And then on the tanker side, we, we advocated for the introduction of a tanker security program. And uh, that tanker security program would be benefited by uh, a change in how we do uh, energy, DLA energy fuel shipments to require that um, DLA energy purchased fuel be uh, bought from U.S. refineries and then transported overseas in U.S. flagged ships. And that would increase the demand for uh, cargo preference, cargo for tankers, and that would allow us to provide a, uh, a set of demands for uh, U.S. flagged tankers that were in this tanker security program. So yeah, we saw, we saw the need for the stipend to go up to, to, to address this change in, in the number of ships available. But we think that's a much more cost-effective proposition than the government purchasing a sea fleet and then putting it uh, into reserve and then hoping to be able to bring it out of reserve when the time came for a, a contingency. We also found that, sure. that a larger commercial fleet and active commercial service uh, under the U.S. flag would provide new opportunities to participate in a greater number of pooling agreements and other arrangements so that U.S. flag carriers could be more competitive when they're carrying commercial cargo. So ideally, over time, we would gravitate to a situation in which uh, U.S. flag carriers would rely to a greater degree on commercial cargo because they'd be active in those trades. And preference cargo would help during peacetime, but would also be another opportunity if there were a potential conflict or crisis. U.S. flag carriers can then obviously carry a greater portion of preference cargo. You also mentioned the possibility of expanding MSP to cover specialty vessel classes that aren't in the government's current portfolio. So do you think you could tell us a little bit more about that and what the potential benefits might be for military capabilities and strategic needs? 
Uh, so right now, if you look at the government seal of fleet, um, there are some specialized ships like crane ships uh, in there. Um, there is a there there have been car, or cable lane ships in the past in the government seal of fleet. Um, those are very difficult for the government main, to maintain because those ships eventually become obsolescent. Um, also, there's not necessarily a sufficient demand signal for them to be continuously employed or to be employed efficiently. So we see that as something that ideally we would. Um, you know, uh, off board to uh, being done, outsource it to be uh, done by commercial providers. Um, and to make it viable for a commercial provider to do, we're going to need to come up with a mechanism to uh, supplement their income that they're going to get because they're not always going to be able to do government business. So having a cable security program, you know, like we have, it gives you a way to have those cable layers be available for government service, but then also to remain commercially viable when they're doing commercial work that doesn't pay the same rates. Um, we see there being opportunities for float on, float off ships, which is the kind of ship we would use to you know, bring potential battle damage ships back from a war zone or just to move ships around that are maybe not big enough to efficiently move across you know transoceanic distances so like smaller combatants like minesweepers etc it's easier to move them overseas using a float on float off ship than to have them try to you know, deploy on their own those ships aren't in the are in the US fleet we're having to be depend we're dependent upon European providers currently for those ships but if we were to create a a security program that would be geared towards those specialized ships, a government stipend make up, might make up for the cost differential and the inefficiencies of being you know, devoted primarily to government service. One of the reasons we also felt a, a specialized program for some of these specialty ships was necessary was because over the past couple of decades, the U.S. Navy and broader Department of Defense have relied more and more on foreign flag capacity to provide some of those ships, be it in terms of cable laying, float on, float off ships, tankers. But what we're observing in the commercial market is a number of foreign actors, in particular China, are crowding out not only U.S. Uh, participants in these markets, but even some of our European allies that the Department of Defense and Navy have relied on, for instance, uh, Norwegian and Dutch float-on-float-off ship capacity to support U.S. Navy ships, but they're now being crowded out by a mix of operating, building, and scrapping subsidies by Chinese companies focused in this part of the, of the market. So unless the U.S. government develops a plan to maintain active commercial capacity in those sectors, it's likely to find that 10, 20 years from now, it may not have access to that. And uh, the only large float-on-float-off ships that could carry warships would be Chinese-owned, which would be problematic in a conflict with China. Yeah, that's a serious strategic consideration. So I'd like to shift gears to the MSC prepositioning fleet, which is maybe a little bit different. In the report, you mentioned that one possibility for recapitalizing those vessels might be to charter in commercial ships to fulfill the prepositioning role. I'm interested in how this might work out. So would these be existing merchant vessels that would be chartered in from the international market? How do you see this arrangement working in practice? So to step back a minute, uh, one of the benefits we see to expanding our use of commercial ships for um, government sea lift needs day-to-day uh, -day, as well as in a surge condition is to create flexibility so that you can change your approach to providing that lift capacity. Uh, today with the government-owned sea lift fleet, you've pretty much got you know, one configuration of sea lift ships, and then you're dependent upon bringing in additional configuration ships from outside the government fleet. But it's expensive to have a government fleet uh, to maintain and do that. 
so in this future model where we rely on an expanded MSP to do a lot of our commercial container and row row capacity and then hopefully tanker capacity through a tanker security program, we could also then look at doing pre-positioning using a commercial model as well by chartering those ships from commercial providers. That way we can change the number and configuration and deployment location of these pre-positioned ships much more easily than we can today with a government-owned fleet. Um, General Berger, the commandant of the Marine Corps, has talked several times about the fact that he expects there to be a different demand signal from the Marine Corps for maritime prepositioning in the future. And he believes our current preposition fleet is probably not well postured or designed to address the Marines' future needs. The Army has expressed a similar concern about the uh, Army preposition fleet. So we're, we're expecting that those requirements will change. Um, so instead of the government trying to anticipate those and build a fleet of government-owned ships, we think this chartering approach is much more flexible. Now, in terms of where those ships come from, we anticipate they're probably going to be foreign-built uh, foreign ships that are then you know, purchased by a commercial U.S. flag commercial provider that are then chartered by um, Merad in this case to provide for uh, preposition capability to the degree that the Army or Marine Corps believe they need to have it. Uh, and that there may be opportunities for U.S. built ships to enter that, but that's probably going to be primarily a foreign built capacity. So you'd essentially be buying the maritime prepositioning as a service. So you'd go to the chart, you'd go to the, the carrier and say, I need to have a ship in this location with these kinds of capabilities, with the ability to get underway and deploy in this period of time. And then the company that's that's the doing the charter would be responsible for providing the ship, providing the skeleton crew that would maintain it in between times it's underway, and then providing the, a, the capability to surge a crew to that ship to deploy it when you know the notice is provided by the government. Uh, and then also there'd be an expectation that these uh, carriers would change out the ship periodically. So the ship that's being chartered will not be the same hull throughout the 10-year uh, year period of the charter in term. You know, instead, perhaps the, the ship's there for a year or two, and then it's changed out with a new ship uh, to allow the ships to be you know, overhauled and maintained. Uh, and then also for a lot, to allow the, the ship operator, the carrier, to, to maintain their fleet, manage their fleet um, to the degree they see fit. It's also worth pointing out that this won't be the first time the uh, Department of Defense would have done this. When we actually started the prepositioning program at, at the start of the 80s, it was actually a charter program in which there was a, a, a need for immediate capacity to meet some of those requirements. So the U.S. government initially chartered some of those ships into the fleet. If we were to do this again with new commercial charters, uh, we could adopt a new approach where we would probably have five-year charters for these ships to keep them within some current contracting limits. And there could be regulations on the age of the ships. So, for instance, you could mandate that the ships need to be 15 years, for instance, or 10 years uh, of age or less to be able to participate in the program, which will help ensure that the ships are at a high state of readiness. And the, the perhaps the best attribute is that there would be a proper alignment of incentives where the companies that actually own the ships – uh, would be the ones that would operate them, maintain them, and would have an incentive to keep that ship in a good state of readiness. One, not only because they, they don't want to get penalties in, in case the ship gets activated at any point, but then two, because they would have the opportunity to actually operate that ship into commercial service once that charter period is over. So if we start with a 10 or 15-year-old ship, 
at the end of that five-year charter period, it will have more time to be able to be cycled back into commercial service if, if desired. So commercial companies would be very well incentivized to properly maintain that ship, which isn't always the case with um, some of the, the contracting arrangements to maintain current government ships in reserve. And those ships could be participating in the MSP. So these ships could be in the MSP, and then the carrier could decide in part, as part of managing their fleet, they're going to rotate them into this pre-positioning charter that they've got. Then that ship would be ineligible for the stipend during the period that it's under charter. And then some other hull within their fleet might take up that, that stipend, uh, and then it would rotate back at the end of it. So carriers that are currently participating in MSP could use this charter as a way to help manage their fleet. Um, you know, And if they're smart, they're going to use this as a way to take ships that they might not want to have in commercial service and use them temporarily in a pre-position manner before they then maybe sell them off to another uh, carrier that might use them as they age out. So this is a good segue. I also wanted to talk a bit about what this would mean for American shipbuilders. Because MSP ships are generally foreign built, and so enlarging that program instead of buying new government-owned ships could have implications for American shipbuilders in terms of the demand they would see from the federal government going forward. Um, so what would this mean for them? So uh, we thought, so when we looked at the study, one of the things we were looking at was, uh, can we ensure that our shipbuilding industry is able to support the construction of government ships that are not built uh, in the military-specific shipyards? So one of our concerns was um, our ability to have a shipbuilding industrial base to build the Coast Guard, NOAA. Uh, smaller Navy ships that are not built on a continuous basis, because right now the that's completely uh, based on just luck, whether the, the U.S. is able to get those ships built in the United States. And the reason that there's even an industrial base to build those ships is because you've got a commercial demand. Uh, so creating that commercial demand is partly the result of the Jones Act that requires U.S. domestic ships in the domestic service to be U.S. built. Uh, but then there's also ways to try to have international fleet ships be built in the United States. So one element we talk about in the report is um, to try to increase the number of tankers that are built in the United States through the um, introduction of this tanker security program and the induction of, of some requirements that might require tankers carrying U.S. Uh, cargo to be U.S. built. That's something that could be pursued. That may not be the first thing you would do. Um, also, there's options to try to make you know LNG carriers be U.S. built. That, again, may not be the first thing you pursue, but those might be options down the road. Um, but we saw the, the plan that we had advocated, um, which looks at um, the construction of a smaller number of ships for the RRF and the surge fleet as being a way to level load the demand on industry rather than Today, um, industry has a very uncertain demand signal from the government for the recapitalization of the surge fleet and the RRF. You know, it's it's going to be two or three ships or four ships or five ships a year, but it'll be for a very short period of time. The fleet, uh, the the construction we proposed in the study was to do one ship at a time, you know, and level load that over the course of two decades. Um, and that was because we had this different approach to providing the recapitalization of the surge fleet and the RRF, which relies on a combination of the expanded MSP and then a more limited construction of new ships. So this also looks like a, a practical fiscal solution. So everybody acknowledges that the sea lift problem is real, that there's a, a real issue with the aging RRF. But the cost of physically building new ships is also quite high. And the Navy is already staring down a decade of extra costs for the replacement of its ballistic missile submarine fleet. It's already looking for ways to trim $8 billion a year out of its expenses, money to build new merchant sea lift vessels, which would not count towards achieving the Navy's 355-vessel future fleet goal. That would mean competing with other defense funding priorities. Um, 
is a bigger MSP a pragmatic solution to this problem? Because you're you're not putting out lots of money up front to build. You're essentially chartering. Uh, we yes, we saw the uh, the cost of the current recapitalization plan as being unsustainable, and therefore we were looking for options that were going to lower the cost of that of that fleet. And one option here is to just reduce the number of ships you're going to buy that are U.S. built. And so the way to do that is by having some other mechanism to provide the rest of that capacity. And we found that uh, that the proposed approach would not only be, I guess, politically viable, as you put it, but it would probably provide a fleet that's far more ready. And that was actually the primary metric we were looking at in terms of the national security considerations of how do we generate a fleet that's ready to meet requirements. And so we found that having a greater portion of the fleet be in the maritime security program, be in these chartered uh, portions of the fleet, would generate a fleet that's more ready to be to sail if necessary uh, than having a continuation of the current flawed surge sea lift model where we buy government ships, leave them in reserve for decades, and then man them with skeleton crews that aren't even able to activate during a conflict. So we found this new approach was lower cost, could be transitioned to more quickly in the near term, and would generate a fleet that's more ready for a potential crisis. So in the report, you mentioned that there are some other options for the American government to support shipbuilders. Do you think you could go into that a little bit more and outline what you see as the future for the smaller and mid-sized yards? Uh, so we saw that the um, the demand signal from the mid-sized yards or the demand signal for the mid-sized yards uh, is likely to stay about the same. And what we advocated in the report was that the government do a better job of managing its own shipbuilding programs. Uh, right now, the Navy has a 30-year shipbuilding plan, uh, but most Navy ships are built at shipyards that specialize in in government or military ships. And therefore, that's really just a relationship between them and those shipyards that are you know, devoted to them. Uh, but there's a bunch of ships that are built by the government outside the Navy that are built on a very sporadic basis and sometimes overlap with one another. And then there's long stretches where there's no government ships being built outside the Navy. And so we saw there be an opportunity there for the Coast Guard, um, the Navy in terms of its non-combatant ships, and then the other government agencies that build ships like Department of Commerce, uh, Department of Transportation, to get together and better integrate their shipbuilding plans to try to provide for these mid-sized yards a more consistent demand signal so that they could keep them in business. Because what the problem is right now is you'll have years where VT Halter and um, Eastern and NASCO will all be sitting on a lot of business because the government is combining with commercial industry. And then there's years where the government's done and they're not going to recapitalize those ship classes for a decade. And then they're totally dependent upon commercial demand, which is very you know iffy in most years. So the government needs to integrate its own demand signal and then look at how that might be better coordinated with industry or commercial demands um, to help these mid-sized yards stay in business. In terms of the uh, sea lift demand, like we said, we're going to you know, we propose building one ship a year out for you know, at least the two, next two decades, which should provide at least a floor for the, the commercial shipping industry among the midsize and larger uh, shipyards. But it's likely that that will result in some contraction, you know, because if you're only building one ship a year out in the commercial world, plus whatever the, sh the government's building, um, and then you've got your Jones Act business, all of that together may not be sufficient to support the current level of the industrial base. And so does that have national defense implications, since the Navy is largely served by a separate ecosystem of defense shipbuilders? Uh, so on the shipbuilding side, not necessarily, but on the supplier side, it does, because the um, the shipyards that build government or military Navy ships today generally do not build commercial ships. But then when you go two or three tiers down from those shipbuilders to the suppliers that build valves, air conditioning plants, uh, fans, 
uh, fan filters, et cetera. Now you start to get into uh, a level of commonality between commercial and military shipbuilding that will impact the ability of military shipbuilders to be sustained. If, if you completely lose the commercial industry, you're going to find that those suppliers are now um, fewer in number um, and ha- are highly dependent upon the government to keep them in business uh, between gov- orders of government ships. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight for our readers? Something else from the report? So one, one other uh, insight from the study, in addition to this uh, discussion about sea lift mariners and shipbuilding, was also just the national security benefits that having a strong maritime industry provide. Um, the ability to keep our sea lanes uh, you know, uh, secure and also operated by U.S. flagged and U.S. owned shipping, that's really important. Um, the ability to uh, move material overseas for government purposes uh, when the need arises is really important in terms of national security. So that was the lens we were looking through for this study, and we thought that you know the contributions uh, from the maritime industry were really important for that, and that sustaining those is important uh, because um, they're not necessarily a government function that we think about every day. So making sure the programs that are in place uh, allow that industry to remain solvent is going to be an important job for Congress. Well, thank you both. Uh, it's refreshing to hear new ideas and perspectives in this debate. Um, you know, we all want to see a revived and strengthened U.S. flag fleet. Awesome. Well, thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you'd like to read more, the new report is titled Strengthening the U.S. Defense Maritime Industrial Base, a Plan to Improve Maritime Industry's Contribution to National Security, and it is available online at csbaonline.org research. This podcast was brought to you by AME Solutions. AME provides the expertise, knowledge, and resources to solve the most challenging vibration and alignment jobs worldwide. Don't get stranded in a remote location, but if you do, AME can mobilize anywhere quickly. For machinery reliability, go to amesolutions.com or dial toll-free at plus one 877 Thank you for listening to In the Know, the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting discussion on maritime technology, business, and policy. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.maritime-executive.com for the latest news and views from around the industry.